Well, with that, we'll begin with a question for Paul. I think a lot of guys would love to know a little bit more about you personally. And so one of the questions I'll ask will be about your conversion. Tell us how the Lord saved you. Well, when I was a, a little boy at, at nine, uh, I was at a, the final ceremony on a Sunday of a vacation Bible school, I think it was. And I really felt that I, I think the Lord did do something. I remember... Just all I could think about was Christ dying, Christ dying, Christ dying. And I made a profession of faith. I don't recall anyone ever explaining the gospel to me. I don't recall. You know, I was just baptized and there seemed to be some excitement for a little while. And then by the time I was 12, I was, you know, sports and cows and horses and just cussing and going on a rampage and, and uh, nothing really godly. I'd go to church, but there wasn't much reality in it. When I was 17, as I said, my dad dyed my arms. We were rolling out wire on a, in a horse field. And um, I just realized that nothing really matters. I went to school, and I don't know whether it was pride or greed or whatever, but I studied all the time. I wanted to make really good grades. I was just empty. And I transferred to the University of Texas. And uh, a freshman came to my room one morning at one in the morning or something. He just couldn't sleep and said that God had a message. And I was kind of laughing about it. And he said that uh, he just couldn't sleep, that he knew for two weeks that God wanted him to come and tell me something, that he was a Christian. And, and I'd been thinking about and actually, you know, sitting there in my bed thinking about how miserable I was. And he used the word miserable. Because I, I kind of laughed. I said, so what's God's message for me? And he's like, you're just miserable. And, you know, I don't know you very well, but everybody who sees you walk down the hall, you're just miserable, sad, angry person. And, and that began... A long, uh, not a real long, but it began just things adding up there. When I first got to the, the apartment complex, um, when I moved to the University of Texas, I fell asleep because I, I drove all night and I got there at like six in the morning. I fell asleep in the lobby and uh, I remember being woke up at about eight o'clock and I look up and this, this dude is standing over me, looked like Apollo Creed. <laughs> He's like, get up, man. And I'm like, I'm going to die. <laughs> and he turned out to be um, the guy that, you know, I watched his life and the life of his friends. And they just, they were fun. I mean, they were great athletes. They were fun and everything, but they just seemed so clean. That was the word. I, I couldn't put my finger on it. It was just, they were clean and I was dirty. And whenever I, I was around that guy, I just felt like he was clean. And... One thing led to another, and one day in the University of Texas undergraduate library, we were running off oil surveys, and some girl asked me to go to a party because I had gotten to the point where basically I, wasn't, I didn't even party like a college student. I would just go to a bar that you'd see a bunch of middle-aged men sitting in. I'd study all day and then either lift weights or drink, you know, and... And she said, why don't you come to my party? And, and I really didn't even think about the answer. But before I knew it, I said, well, because I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm a Christian now. I'm going to follow Jesus. 
And it was like a cartoon where a light bulb turns on in your head. Because I saw how shocked her face was. And then the guys who knew me, you know, like turned around and said, man, that's even low for you, you know. And, uh, uh, and, and, but it was like, that was exactly what I'm, and, and you know, I knew I was a sinner and all that, but just, it was like, that's why I tell people, be very careful of the way you deal with conversions, because um, it, it's not always this Puritan, brokenhearted weeping for six weeks. There will be repentance, and sometimes the repentance shows up more later. I mean, it's just, I just was overwhelmed by the fact that God sent his son to die for me. It was just such a reality. And then again, like I've said before, it was uh, the guy who looked like Apollo Creed and his friends and guy, they, they, they eventually took control of my life. They said, you know, well, summer's coming. Are you staying? Yeah. Okay. You're going to be living with us. Do I have a choice in the matter? No. You know, and it was like they just God always put those types of people around me. And it's been that way all my life. We'll come back to that uh, about the importance of surrounding yourself with men who will push you towards Christ. So I want to come back to that. But just a little bit more about you personally. Uh, Now, fast forward uh, 30 some years. Tell us a little bit about your family. Oh, Um, I have. A wife, her name is uh, Chado, and her father is from Spain. Her mother's from Peru. She considers herself Latin American, Peruvian, and uh, she's something. She's something, as all Latin American men here can attest to. (laughs) She's something, and uh, she's uh, the strongest. I'm not saying this in any way except that it's true. She's the strongest human being I know. When the doctors told her, look, we've lost your husband, you know, when I had my massive heart attack and all that went on, I know exactly what she did. She didn't cry. She would say to herself something like this, I don't have the luxury of crying. I have four children to raise. I mean, that's just the kind of person that she is. And, and then I have a son, Ian, who studies at Masters. Um, and then a son, Evan, who is... Um, 17 and uh, homeschooled and he's also been working construction since he was about 18 so he studies and then works with a crew and then I have a daughter Rowan who's 13 gorgeous and then I'm going to be 60 in a few months and I have a five-year-old yeah that's impressive (laughs) yeah yeah and uh I came home from China Bridge just dead tired. I remember going up. We lived in an old cabin. I, I, I laid down on the bed. My wife walked in, and I said, Chado, I think I'm going to die. I'm so tired. And she said, you better live forever, old man. And I was like, what, what do you mean by that? And she threw that stick at me with the little thing on it. <laughs> I said, just call me Abraham. <laughs> And so I have this, I have this five-year-old daughter that, you know, I I was a little, when I found out, I I felt sad for her because I thought, you know, here, she's going to have this old dad, you know, (laughs) and I've been close to all my children. Um, But I mean, 
as soon as I get home, she owns me. I mean, I'm, yeah, it's pretty much. Yeah, you have a perspective of age that you can bring into your, your parenting. And so that's a very polite way of saying it. <laughs> that, well, it does tie to a question that I want to ask you on meditating on, on mortality. And just a few yeah. years ago, you, your yeah. body died anyway. Yeah. They had to revive you a bunch of times and very serious event in, in your life. That obviously has contributed to a more circumspect perspective yeah. on the brevity of life. But let's say you're, you're addressing a man who's in the prime of his life. He's 25 years old. Yeah. He's healthy, muscular, strong, yeah. fast. He, he's finished college, and, and he thinks he's got a long ways to go yet. How can you help that kind of a man meditate on his mortality? Yeah, guys like you are a dime a dozen. They die every day. And it's, it's just true. I look back now, and... I didn't have the good training, uh, theological training and things that you would get in a place like this. And so, you know, the younger years of my ministry, I know I had to learn, made a lot of mistakes. And but there's one thing that I look back on. My body's broken in so many ways. But I'm glad that when I was in my strength, by the grace of God, I served him, although in a very fallible way, um, in the sense that, you know, there's just so many, so much ignorance, a lot of zeal. But I, I would just encourage you, um, you know, you reach a point where it doesn't matter the strength of will. It no longer really matters because um, the body can't match the will. You know, my wife says to me. You know, it doesn't matter how much you're out in the garage playing those Rocky songs. You're not going to be repping out 315 anymore. (laughs) And uh, it's just true. It's just like, you know, you can no longer get yourself in fights that your body can't win. And, um, And so while you're young, pour yourself out for him. And if there ever was an opportunity for young men to arise and fight, it's now. Yeah, that's so helpful. I reflect back on my younger years in ministry, too. And, you know, at the time you have that zeal and that energy, and then now you look back and see how green and ignorant. Yeah. And that can be an obstacle for young men, not just in formal ministry context, but even in involvement in the local church. They don't think they're ready yet. They need to wait longer until they do have the gray hair, and then they'll start to get involved. What would you say to those men about the fear of failure? Well, first of all, you may never reach an age where you have gray hair. I mean, you know, Robert Murray McShane, gone before his 30s. David Brainerd, gone in his 20s. Um, you, You just don't know. You don't know. We are only, we are given a certain decree, decreed amount of time. We don't know what that is. So while you live, serve him. Serve him. And please, you know, it's like I tell my children. You must walk in your father's footsteps only in the sense of seeking to live your life for Christ. But you're not your father. You know, 
when my son came to Masters, he said, Dad, what's going to happen when people walk up to me and say that I'm not like you? And I said, well, tell them this. Your dad knows that you're not like him, but your dad loves you and is proud of you. And, uh, and so, young men, it's not that you're supposed to run off to the mission field unless God tells you to or become a minister of this. But uh, one of the things I'm most amazed about this church here is um, the labor of the laymen here. Uh, not only in the church, but their own ministries, at their works and at their professions and at their jobs. And, you know, I, when I come here now, I, I usually stay with old John Austria, you know, that chiropractor guy. And, uh, you know, just how many people that they've won to the Lord through their, through their ministry. It's a ministry. It's not really an employment. And all of us have that opportunity. You know? Yeah, that's helpful. With respect to more personal disciplines for young men and old men, you mentioned this, the, the fight that it is to maintain regular uh, intake of God's Word. What are some of the practical things that you've either observed in the men that you've learned from mm-hmm. or the things that you've observed in your own life as it pertains to that daily discipline of of letting the word of Christ dwell richly within us? Well, if you're a Christian, uh, it's something that my wife would always tell my boys, and my boys are rather big. One of them six 6'5", the other one is like 6'3", and they're pretty tough characters. And see my wife standing there still today. Now look, boys, we can do this the easy way, or we can do this the easy way, because for me, both ways are easy. <laughs> And, and it's kind of like, um, if you belong to the Lord, you're not your own. He's not going to ask permission to bathe you. You know, one time I was in, um, you know, I was a farm boy. So farm boys are known by every crevice in their body has dirt in it. And so, you know that. I know that, yes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I come in the house and, and mom, my mom says, Take a bath. And then, you know, you reach that age, you're nine. You can shoot pretty well. You can ride good. You can work cattle with the men. So you tell your mom, Mom, I don't think I'm going to take a bath tonight. And then your mom turns around and looks at you, and you realize you have made the biggest mistake <laughs> of your life. She says, you will go take a bath. So you go in there, and You love to swim in farm ponds full of snakes and everything, but when it comes to bathtubs, there's just something wrong with them because the water's clear. You know, who can trust clean water? And, And so you go in there and you turn it on and you go like this, and then you take your mom's white towel and you dry off. Everything's going wonderful. Everything's fine. Then mom walks in. My mom could lift and work cattle as well as any man. Her hands were like a horse rasp. And when she grabs you by the back of the neck and gives you a bath, you come out of there like the Shekinah glory. Yeah. And so I could have done it the easy way. I could have washed. It's the same way when God talks about the new covenant. He says, uh, 
I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. He says, I will cause you to walk in my commandments. And so, you know, to give ourselves to the study of God's word, one of our motivations is, well, we need it as much as food, as much as air. The other is, if you do belong to God, God will get the job done. How do you want it done? You know, you can get to Israel walking from Egypt in a matter of weeks, or you can take 40 years. It depends. Just how do you want to do this? <laughs> Let's talk about that same discipline in terms of prayer. So the discipline of prayer, I know that's something very dear to your heart. Yeah. You talk about it quite frequently. It, it really is vital for any man to be a man of prayer. So, again, counsel us from what you have learned as you've studied Scripture on this topic and interacted with other godly men who are examples on this. You know, when, when I, um, after I was a Christian for about two years, trying to preach on streets and things like that and just seeing that there was no power. There was no conversion. Something happened. An old man gave me several books, old books. I read them on prayer. You know, E.M. Bounds, Hudson Taylor, George Mueller. Um, And something happened. Prayer became like breathing. I would study all day. I would work at my job till 11 or something, come home and then Pray in the closet till one, two. And it was easy. It was like breathing. And um, now I say that because you need to know it so you understand the rest of the story. And for, for a long time, I wondered, why do people have so much trouble with prayer? I just, I couldn't understand. It was as easy to be alone with God. And you know what happened. What happened was what was absolutely necessary. It became difficult to pray. And then I realized that there are seasons of prayer that may last weeks, months, years, but they're always behind it. It is not some special devotion inherent in the believer. It's God doing something with a specific purpose. So we must all pray, but we're dependent also upon God for unusual and extraordinary times of prayer. And I have tried to repeat those, always um, ending in failure. We are to pray every day. We are to pray in communion, and we are to pray in intercession. And yet, um, and and sometimes it's a battle. And then there comes times when, particularly like, When we first started looking at Africa, uh, it had been several years since I was able just to flow in prayer. And I remember this, I was walking down this gravel road and I had uh, kept hearing about Conrad and Bayway and the extraordinary work in Africa. And for about three weeks again, prayer was, it was just, just flowed for weeks and weeks. But it was all about Africa. And you know, now 20 and, 25 years later or whatever, it's, we're all over. I mean, Africa's one of the biggest things and the men that we work under in Africa and things. And, and so you have to be careful. You, you, you need prayer, 
You must pray. And there's different kinds of praying. But also when you read books about extraordinary men of prayer, learn from it, but do not allow that to drive you to condemnation. God did an extraordinary thing. In the same way that I cannot be held responsible for not being Spurgeon. I can't necessarily be held responsible for not being E.M. Bounds. But we must pray and we must fight our flesh. The only thing that your flesh hates worse than studying the Bible is prayer. Because at least your flesh can boast in your knowledge. But in prayer, there's nothing to boast of because it's secret. Also, men, when I talk to men about prayer and I ask them about their prayer life, I I quickly understand why they don't like praying. Because they, there are two types of praying, I put it this way. There's prayer with your boots on and prayer with your boots off. Intercession is nothing but blood, sweat, and tears, and it's hard. You're battling against the world and the devil and everything. You may be calling upon God. You may be even be like a watchman on the wall in the night watch. That's hard. And, and if that's all you do in prayer, then yes, in time you're going to wear out. I have, when I'm times of trial, my most powerful prayer, I love to share this, is to get out in the night watch at night, get out of bed, and just, there's this one window I would look out. And just to be able to sit there and go, you know, oh Lord, you know. But my favorite thing is my most necessary thing um, is, is in the morning. People talk about vacations. It's my little vacation every day. I open up my Bible. I read three chapters in my Spanish Bible. And I enjoy it. If I come to something I don't understand, I don't worry about it. There's another time for that. I'm just there to meet with the Lord. Seated at a table in the morning and a cup of coffee. And reading my Bible and then talking to the Lord. I also love walking. So times I will go out into the woods and just walk. But just fellowship with the Lord. Um, I don't want to sound trite, but, you know, just talk to him. And I talk to him about so many things, you know, about the things in my heart, about things I'm afraid of. I talk to him about beautiful things I've seen. I talk to him about things that are humorous to me. I, I I just, it's such a delight to have such a companion. And if if I didn't have those aspects of prayer, I don't think I'd be able to intercede. Studying is very, very hard. I separate that time from my study because studying may require, oh my goodness, you know, how many books do I have to look through to find out what this participle is actually doing? I mean, I'm exegeting, I'm diagramming sentences, I'm researching a text. Um, That's hard work. So that's intercession and that kind of study is prayer and study with my boots on. Mm -hmm. Reading my Bible just to enjoy the Lord and enjoy his word and Mm -hmm. walking and sitting and praying. That's prayer with my boots off. Mm -hmm. And that's very important to me. Yeah, I think how you emphasize the fact that prayer doesn't need to be complicated. You know, sometimes we raise these high standards and we fail to grasp that it is, it is pouring out our hearts to our Creator yeah. and yeah. that He delights in it. Yes. 
And he's not looking for some fancy form or for us to make it look like someone else. He wants our hearts. You know, another thing, I, I, one of the, my heroes of the faith is, was a man who lived in Peru that I've mentioned at times that I believe honestly that through his ministry somewhere around 350 churches or more were planted in the mountains, Angel Comenares. And he was such a funny little man. He would go up in the mountains and preach, sometimes at the risk of his life, but he would always bring back some little fossil he found. Or if he was in the jungle, he'd bring back a plant and put it in his garden. And he was, he just, just, it wasn't that he was like with those things instead of doing the things of God. It's just that he, he had no separation. For him to find a, a seashell at 11,000 feet, you know, he would bring it home and put it in his collection because, look, there really was a flood, you know. And, and, he, and there was a childlikeness to this man who had stood against hell for years. And, and I find that, that in speaking with the Lord... It's not an irreverence. You know, Abba Father does not translate as Daddy. Yeah. Um, and, but there is an endearment. And when you walk with him and talk with him, be very careful about something because your prayers will betray your, or at least reveal your, your theology proper, your doctrine of God. Let me give you an example. I hear preachers and they'll get up it's Sunday morning and they go, wow, it's good to see you all here. And it's wonderful to be in the house of God and good to see you over here. And hey, about, how about that Braves game? Well, I tell you what, today in the household of God, we're just going to have a wonderful time. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, I come before you. We've all seen that. Man, that, just, that man just told me a lot. He just told me a lot. Puritans would say there are some things you do with a trembling lip. I've already talked about being a child, the presence of God, and talking to the Lord about sunsets. But be very careful. You're not calling him on the phone. You don't talk to him that way. And you don't rush in like a fool where angels fear to tread. There's nothing wrong with being jovial with your congregation. Boy, when you're going to turn yourself to him, you better stop for a moment. You better gather your wits about you. Very helpful reminder. One of the questions that was asked on Wednesday night when we had a a meeting with you with uh, our men of the word ministry here and the uh, men from the high school ministry, uh, I thought I'd raise it at this point because many of those men, uh, young and old, are here. It was this question, how do we know that we are called for ministry as a pastor or a missionary? So how do we properly understand the re- revelation of God's Sovereignty, his will in our lives, whether we go into a career, accounting, construction, or pastoral ministry, or going overseas and 
and being a pastor in a different context? How, do you, how does a young man work through those, those difficult questions? Well, first thing is you cannot just live a stimuli response life like I need to decide what I need to do in this area, therefore I respond. Um, the Bible talks about, as you know, in, in Romans 12, renewing your mind and you will know the perfect will of God. And so, if, if let me give you an example. If a guy th- throws a punch at me and while the punch is coming, you expect, all of a sudden tell me what I'm supposed to do, I'm probably not going to do it by the time he hits me. But if you train me and show me how to put up my elbow to block that and you make me do that a million times, then when that punch comes flying, he's going to hit my elbow and he's going to probably break a few knuckles. Um, and, And the point I'm trying to make is if you have not developed a lifestyle of renewing your mind in the Word of God so that you cultivate the mind of Christ and begin to think biblically, then don't think that you just ought to be able to jump over and answer these very deep questions. It's not the way it works. And so, first of all, you need to develop a mindset of every day renewing your mind in the Word. Another thing that's very important is the desires of your heart. A man who is renewing his mind in the word and a man who has, by God's grace and in a fallible manner, has determined to seek first the kingdom. One of the questions he ought to ask himself is, what is my desire? God will give us the desires of of our heart. When I went to Peru, it's because I longed to go to Peru. I desired to go to Peru when I began heart cry. It's because I longed to do that. Now, there's another important passage in 2 Corinthians 8, 16. Apparently, a public call went out in the church for help at Corinth. We know that Apollos didn't want to go and different things. But Paul says, but thanks be to God who put the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. God put an earnestness, a desire, can be translated urgency in the heart of Titus. You see, the leaders didn't have to force Titus to go. They would have had to hold him back. But here's something also. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he has gone to you of his own accord. Do you see how many times Paul is telling them he did this on his free? It was his, his decision to do it. He wasn't forced because I've known some churches in some areas of the world where they basically tell a family, you're going to go be a missionary. That's ridiculous. So God put an earnestness in his heart. So you say to yourself, well, God put an earnestness in my heart. Well, there's more to that. Now we go back to 1 Timothy 3 and we see that if someone aspires to be an elder, that's a good thing. That's like an earnestness placed in their heart. But now they must qualify. Okay? And even in 2 Corinthians 8, the men that were sent with Titus, it says, uses the word dokimazo. They were tested. And that's the same word used for deacons and 
you didn't know it, elders are to be tested too because it says deacons also. And so, you know, like a, a dear brother came to me even last night and, and, and everything he said was, was wonderful. It was encouraging. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm street preaching and, and but there's some internal struggles with some of the, my family because I'm doing this. And do you have any advice? And I said, um, are you a member of a church? He said, yes. And I mean, this is a good man. So you're a member of a church? Yes. I said, so how much time did the elders invest in examining your life so that they could prove, approve this public ministry of yours in street preaching? Well, they haven't. And I said, well, there you got your answer right there. I'm not saying you shouldn't street preach. I'm just saying that you need to got conflicts here maybe it's because of this maybe you need to go to the elders and you need to make sure that the gospel you're preaching you see so it's it's not just the inward call but it's then the confirmation of the elders and the congregation and then when it comes to now that doesn't necessarily with this type of preaching require ordination every ministry doesn't require ordination but they need to be approved of the elders in congregation. And the elders need to really take it seriously. But especially in ordination, there are far too many people ordained far too quickly. And they, the elders who do it are foolish because they are actually will be held accountable on the day of judgment for the sin and error of that ministry. So it's both things. It's an inward call from God and the confirmation by an elders and the local church. That's helpful. Let me shift gears a little here and turn to what is recognized widely as one of the, the, the most difficult areas of temptation for men, and that has to do with sexual purity. Mm-hmm. And uh, certainly, you know, when we look at what's happening in our society today, uh, the sexual impurity is is now treated as a virtue. You know, we have a government that is the most hostile to biblical purity in this area that has ever existed in this country. And then it's pumped through not only through policies in the government, it's the media and everything else. It comes through at the earliest ages for kids. And so it, there's just this constant bombardment of exposure to that lady folly in Proverbs who's enticing and inviting. The Bible doesn't whisper about the sin of sexual immorality. In fact, would you say that the scriptures treat sexual immorality as as a a, a, a unique sin and and a grievous one? Not that you know, we have little white lies and little things that are okay to do and other things are not, but the Bible treats sexual sin with especially strong words. Uh, Would you say that? And then secondly, uh, how should men in this world battle Mm -hmm. against the ubiquity of that temptation? Yeah. um, God's speaks very loudly in the Old and New Testament with regard to all sexual immorality. Not just certain perversions, but all sexual immorality. Because all sexual immorality, um, 
infidelity to your wife is a perversion. You need to understand that. It's a perversion. It's wrong. And it's deadly. The consequences that it have be more far-reaching than anything anyone could ever understand. It's deadly. Now, I remember one time I was, I was preaching at a university in Romania, and they weren't very friendly, a lot of the students. And as I was preaching, this one young man kept interrupting. And so I finally said, you know, what is going on? He said, what's your question? He said, I'm sick and tired of your archaic uh, religious commands that try to um, oppress us and oppress our lives and all these things. And I said, okay, good enough. And he got ready to sit down. I said, no, 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 we're not finished. Please stand up. I said, exactly which commands oppress you? Is it the one that says you shall not take your neighbor's wife? Does that oppress you? Because if it does, I think we all need to be more careful with our wives around you. Is it, is it the one that says thou shalt not murder? Does that oppress you? And I just started going down through commands. And he knew that he was in trouble. And so he goes, look, we just want to go out and, and party and have a good time and, and all this type of stuff. And I said, okay, let me see if I understand you correctly. Are you married? He said, no, I'm not married. What are you going to do tonight? It's Friday, right? Man, we're going out to the, it's in Europe, so we're going out to the disco or whatever, and we're going to party. I said, you're going to party. Okay, so let me see if I understand that right. You're going to go out to a disco. You're going to get drunk, right? Yeah, okay. And then you're going to go hunt another man's daughter without his permission, like a pack of wolves. Did I understand you correctly? And he was like, no. Well, I think I did. I said, in all your conquests, did you ever think about her dad? Did you ever think about her mom? Did you ever think about her? I said, you're feeding off people. And one of the reasons why adultery, to lust in your heart for a woman, or for a woman to lust in her heart for a man, is it's murder. You say, what do you mean it's murder? Every human being on this planet was created in the image of God. Something of the image of God remains in them. When you look at them with lust in your heart, you've reduced them in your mind to a thing to be used to satiate you. You're an animal. You're killing in your own mind the image of God in that woman or that man. And that's why it's grotesque. Immorality is grotesque. And you're going to think I'm going to say because God is holy. Immorality is grotesque because God is love. Because God is love. And men, we need to realize this. We must realize this. God hates it. Now, 
if you notice the particular attack in the last year, why is this? And why all this gender fluidity and all this other stuff? It is a manifestation of a hatred for God. Now you say, yes, what they're doing is evil. Look, remember, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but powers and principalities and mights and dominions. I'm going to look beyond the politician. I'm going to look beyond the activist. There is a devil who hates God and hates his creation. And he knows he is going to be destroyed, but his hatred is so great that he just keeps going. And all he desires to do is twist any beautiful, lovely thing that God has made. He doesn't make anything. He just twists what has been made. And and that's why this is so bad. Now, with regard to, you know, being tempted. Temptation is going to come. But if you only fight temptation on the basis that it's principally wrong, there's not much power in that. So let's look at different categories in which we fight temptation. One of them, I will tell young men that I may be discipling. I'll say, look, you know what I think about the laws of God. I am as far away from an antinomian as you can get. I love the law of God. It sends me to Christ, but it also gives me wisdom. It's like a lamp unto my feet. I love the law of God. But I don't walk around every day thinking if I look there or I look at this. Principally, I'm not thinking I will break the law of God. I'm thinking I will grieve the Holy Spirit. I will grieve Christ. This is about a person. I find power in that. I find a great deal of power in that. Another thing that people fail to realize is that in the book of James, when we talk about temptation... You know the passage in chapter 1. And then it, everyone thinks it comes to an end in verse 16. And in verse 17 now, James is going to pick up with something else about how good God is. The problem there is, is those, that's all one passage. It belongs together. And, and when he says, every, he says, do not be deceived, my brethren, my beloved brethren. Do not be deceived about what? Do not be deceived about the goodness of God. He's going right back to the garden, isn't he? How did Satan deceive? Well, God won't let you eat from any of these trees. I mean, that's what the devil said. He's deceiving. In what way? Every time the devil can make God look bad, sin looks good. And so he's always going to tempt you with a direct attack on the character of God. So a young man is tempted by sexual immorality. What does he need to realize? By putting this in front of me, the devil is saying God is not good. He's keeping things back from you. But what you have to realize is what's being offered to me is being offered to be by someone who hates my soul in an unspeakable manner. It doesn't matter how good this looks. It's being offered to me by someone who only desires my eternal condemnation. 
That's one way to look at it. The next way is by taking the counterfeit, I forfeit the real. Like when he says, here is sex, but it's illicit, it's perverted, it's wrong, it's out of wedlock. But you need to go further. Every good and every perfect gift is from above. If this isn't coming from God, it's not perfect, it's not good. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or or shifting of shadow. And so you overcome temptation by recognizing it is a deadly, filthy, perverted counterfeit of something good that comes from God who loves you. So you expose it. You're not deceived. But the other thing that people look over is this. When married men tell me, you know, how can I protect myself? It's always... And and this is necessary, but it's always let's put up barriers, let's put up walls, let's watch the Internet, let's do all this. And that's true. But that's not even half of it. A man who is satisfied in his relationship with his wife. That's the probably the strongest fortress you can build. Yes, you need to build all those other walls. But what I'm saying is if you would spend much more time doing this just you know for some men I think most are mature people here um, he says let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth as a loving hind and a graceful doe let her breast satisfy you at all times be exhilarated always with her love For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? See, you cultivate. Look at some of these words. You know, you cultivate satisfaction with your wife. You cultivate being exhilarated by your wife. You cultivate a relationship of intimacy, which does include um, the physical, but it's so far beyond that. You know, my my uncle was, he told me one time, he said, uh, you know, men always think about, you know, he lived in where there were beaches, kind of like here and things. He goes, men always think about not going to the beach and the temptation and, and all these things. And he says, that's true. There's element of truth in that. He goes, but what men don't think about is usually in their relationship with their wife, it starts becoming common. You start treating each other as common. You get in little spats. You don't take care of yourself when you're with each other. You, you dress a certain way. You don't care, take care of your body and all kinds of things. And you get in spats. And then he said, and then the man leaves the house. And for his work, he has to go to the bank. And there at the bank is a very articulate lady dressed very finely, not sensually or anything, just dressed very nice, who treats him because she's paid to treat him, polite and kind and all kinds of things. And he goes, that's where it's most deadly. You see, in Peru, we say, Salvame de las aguas mansas, de las aguas bravas me salvo yo. And what it means is, save me um, from the calm waters. 
I'll save myself from the rough ones because I know they're rough. I know to be cautious, but the calm ones. But are you? This is a question that recently I've asked myself. I've, I've done it periodically. And, and I, I have to admit, it's always not enough, not enough. I've been neglectful. But are you cultivating intimacy with your wife? Now, for a man, sometimes cultivating inf- in, uh, intimacy has a lot to do with the physical. And you can't understand why, why is she not on board with that? Well, it's, it's what you've been harping about, right? She's different than you. Remember, we appreciate those differences. That she wants to be spoken to in a certain way. She wants to be listened to in a certain way. She wants, there's, there's so many other factors for her. She's a finer being. And so you, you need to cultivate that. Um, one of the ways that... Here's another thing, men. Let me, let me tell you something. You have no excuse. When you get married, you know, you hear about... You always hear this, and I, we'll go to the next question, but you always hear this, you know, well, that woman, she got married and she let herself go. I don't see that very much. I de- do see a bunch of... Well, I'm, I'm, I do see a bunch of guys who let themselves go. Your body is not yours. It belongs to your wife. Everything about you, I mean, it doesn't mean you're supposed to be in a gym pumping iron every day, but listen to me. Every time these little things add up in your wife's life, and every one of them is a little note that says, you know, it's all common now. You remember when you, you know, you, you first met her and you would hold the door open for her to get in the car and everything. And then after a while, you know, it's raining outside. You both run to the car and you jump in and you roll down the window. Why are you standing outside? You're getting all wet. <laughs> you see? And so it's, and it's not, It's not complicated. You go through those commands where it says, please your wife, praise your wife, do all these different things. So one of the best ways to avoid sexual immorality is to cultivate your relationship with your wife. And one last thing, I tell my boys this. I told them this when when uh, even before I talked to them when they were older about sex, uh, because for a little boy, he can understand that one day he will marry and all he understands is that, you know, he's supposed to be faithful and he has a friendship with this lady. Um, but I would always tell my boys uh, when they're about six, I said, uh, now we need to start praying. You need to start praying for your wife. They look at you. And I said, you're six years old. She's probably already born. I said, do you want to be a hero? Well, yeah. Okay. She's a little girl. We don't know where she is. We don't know if her dad loves her or beats her. We don't know if she's surrounded by influences that are good so that she prospers and learns to sing and dance and wears bows in her hair. 
We don't know where she is. Are you going to be a man? Are you going to man up? You don't even know who she is and you may not meet her for another 20 years. But are you going to be on your knees for her? Are you going to pray that she grows in Christ? Are you going to pray? You see, young men, some of you, you're 20 and you're not doing that. You know, think, why should a young man who's 15 be sexually pure? Because he's got a wife. He just hasn't met her yet. You see that? I'm living for her wherever she is. You know what this does? You know what this world does? It pours, pours filth on everything and takes a poisonous dagger and drives it straight through the heart of beauty. Kills everything. There's no chivalry. There's no romance. There's no, nothing pure. There's nothing. But you can restore that in your children by saying, you know, look, Camelot. It's time to, you need to, there's some dragons out there. You need to protect that little girl. You need to pray and you need to be holy for her. Do you want her to come? As a pure virgin to you? Yes. Well, then you do the same. You do the same. And then I always tell them, But if you meet a girl and her life has already run down many dark channels, will you, but she now knows Christ, will you be the man that takes her in and loves her like the most beautiful and precious person that ever walked on this planet? Just think about this. Why don't our boys understand these things? When was the last time you told your boys about these things? Very helpful words, Paul. As we draw close to the end now, one final question, and it's aimed at those who perhaps are under particular conviction, and they've recognized in their own lives that their object of affection is the world and all that the world offers. And they're recognizing that they've never loved Christ, they've never seen his beauty, they've never recognized the infinite worth that he is. Take a few moments to address those men. Yes. If you were here in the the last two sessions, you understand that It is impossible to have faith apart from the revelation of God. The beginning of salvation is the proclamation of God's word. The expounding of God's word to you so that you can understand and believe. Here's the thing. Um. You simply have no other choice. You must know God. And if it requires violence for you to know him, and what I mean is an extreme seeking of him, then violence is a must. You've got to realize you're in a precarious position. 
you're without Christ. The judgment of God is upon you. You cannot fix anything. But there's a message that saves. There's the gospel. Christ died for your sins. Was buried and rose again on the third day. He lived the perfect life of righteousness that you have not lived. And he died under the penalties of your disobedience for which you would have to die for eternity. He suffered the wrath of almighty God, God's holy hatred of evil, of your evil on that tree as your substitute. And salvation is found in no other name. You don't run to him to serve. You fall upon him to be saved. You trust in that message. You trust in that revealed truth. And then, brothers, listen. You know, when people talk about mission organizations and this and that, first of all, Heart Cry is a ministry of a local church. Brethren, God doesn't have any organization on this planet outside of a local church. I'm sorry. We're going to follow the regulative principle if we're going to um, be biblical about this. You don't need a parachurch ministry. You don't need a some sort of uh, college ministry. Those can all be good in some degree, but they must all take you to the one place, the one place that God has ordained where people grow, and that is a local church with biblical elders that preach the word. You have to be there. The, one of the problems, though, is, is that many of these things called churches are not churches. They're entertainment centers. That's not where you need to be. They're full of hype, full of emotion, seeker-friendly. All the, You do not need to be there. You see, here's something that you need to understand. This is Christ's church, Christ's way. You need to be in a church where men fear God, they fear him so much that they would not add anything to his decrees with regard to the care of the bride, and they would not be negligent of any of those decrees. You need to be in a local church. Thank you. Thank you so much, Paul, for all of the morning that you've spent with us, all the words that you've shared from God's word to us. They have all been very, very timely. Let's thank Paul for the time.